One of the things I have loved about studying the letter of 1 John is how much writing we have from the same author in the rest of the New Testament. We have John's gospel, which is an account of the life and the teaching and the signs and the wonders of Jesus from the beginning of his ministry to the account of his life and his death and his resurrection. And then we've got the three letters that he wrote that we call 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And then we have the book of Revelation. And we have all of this that is from the same author helping us to understand who Jesus is and what he's done. When we worked through the Gospel of John a number of years ago here at Christ City, we looked at the whole thing over the course of 59 Sundays, and we paid special attention to what John said about the why of his gospel or the purpose for which he wrote his gospel. It says in John chapter 20, verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he says he wrote this gospel, this eyewitness account of the life and the ministry of Jesus so that you would all believe, that you would all believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have eternal life in his name. And in the Bible, the name of a person is not just a label that is absent of content or substance in the way that my name is Brett. No, it's, it's different. Believing in his name means that you believe in the nature and character of who he revealed himself to be. He's saying that Jesus is the Savior and that Jesus is the divine Son of God. So he writes his gospel, listen, so that you believe that Jesus is who he said he is and that by believing you would enter into eternal life. Now, that's pretty good as far as a a literary purpose statement goes. But verse 13 in our text today is the purpose statement of this letter that we call 1 John. Verse 13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Okay, he's not writing so that you would believe, so that these folks would believe. He's writing to those who do believe in the name of the Son of God. They believe in Jesus, and he's writing to them that they may know with great certainty that they have eternal life. So here's my point. The purpose of John's gospel is to bring people to faith, and the purpose of John's letter is to give assurance to the faithful. The purpose of John's gospel is to bring people to faith, and the purpose of John's letter is to give assurance to the faithful. So if you're curious about this Jesus character that we keep talking about around here, but you're not really sure if you would call yourself a Christian, you're not really sure if you believe this story of reality that we're talking about, what I'm going to share today is going to give you a, a beautiful sense, I think, of the assurance we have as Christians. But I want you to know this is for you. You're welcome in this church community, and we want to walk with you as you try and figure out this Jesus thing. Almost exactly 20 years ago from right now, I was in your shoes. I was talking with the one Christian friend I had about life and meaning and purpose and what everything adds up to. Everything around me was shaking, and I needed something stable to hang on to. 
If you're already a follower of Jesus, my prayer is that what I'm going to share today would draw you deeper into the assurances that we have as disciples of Jesus. And so, therefore, this is for you. Whoever you are and wherever you're from, in an age of increasing disruption and uncertainty, you just need to know what you can count on as stable and certain. We live in an age of great uncertainty. But what I'm going to show you today is what we can be certain of. And that's why it matters so deeply. That's what this text is about. It's about knowing Jesus is who this letter says he is. It's about knowing that God hears our prayers. It's about knowing that God keeps us and protects us. It's about knowing that we are God's people and we have a place to belong. So that's the outline of what I'm talking about today. Confidence in Jesus. Confidence in our prayers. Confidence in our protection. And confidence in our belonging. Confidence in Jesus. Confidence in our prayers. Confidence in our protection. And confidence in our belonging. So first, confidence in Jesus. Hey, Some of you, I, I know this from pastoring you for a long time now. Some of you really struggle to gain confidence in your prayers and your protection and your belonging. And, and I think part of the problem is you're trying to start with those apart from establishing your confidence in Jesus. We must start with our confidence in Jesus. Everything else emanates from that. Verse 20 says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. If you don't have confidence that Jesus is who he says he is and that he has accomplished what he says he has accomplished, you will never have confidence in anything else. So when I hear people are wrestling with their faith in God, maybe it's an issue of feeling like God's not answering their prayers. Maybe it's some terrible stuff that they've experienced that has happened to them and they feel like maybe God is not looking out for them and not protecting them. Or maybe they feel like a misfit within the community of God's people, the church. They feel like they don't belong. The first thing I want to do when those challenges come is to refocus folks' attention upon Jesus. I want to get him back at the center of the story again. Over 20 times in this little letter, John tells us what we can be assured of, what we can be certain of, and what we can know. Just look at verse 20 again. It says, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Listen, knowing Jesus is the source of the understanding we have in the Christian life. It's all about Jesus. It's all based on Jesus. It's all been revealed by Jesus. It all funnels back to being about Jesus. So you better get Jesus right. And verse 20 says Jesus is God. This is so important. Just indulge me as a preacher one more time. Look back at the text with me. Verse 20 says, and we know. That the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. He, Jesus, is the true God and eternal life. So think of it like this. 
right? What if some of the struggles that you're facing in your life of faith, what if they come down to the fact that you're hanging on to an inferior Jesus of your own creation? What if? See, Jesus isn't your advisor. You need much more than good advice. Jesus is not your life coach. You need much more than seven tips on how to live a healthier life. Jesus isn't your therapist. You need much more than therapy to have the assurance of God's love. Jesus is not your pathway to financial freedom like the Jesus of the prosperity gospel. Jesus is not just a good teacher as though somehow more knowledge would solve all of our problems. And he's not just a good teacher in the sense that, well, you know, 2,000 years later, we can correct some of the things that he missed. Jesus is not just a good moral example. You and I both know we don't measure up. We need more than a moral example for us. Jesus is the true God and eternal life. Jesus is the incarnate God, born of the Virgin Mary, fully man, fully God. Jesus is the one they crucified because he said he was God. He said he could forgive sin. He said he came to save the world. He said he came to set up his kingdom once and for all, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. So don't buy into a lesser vision of Jesus that comes out of the modern culture we live in. An advisor cannot atone for your sin. A life coach cannot give you the assurance of eternal life. A therapist cannot raise from the dead. A therapist cannot triumph over Satan and sin and death and hell and the grave. But Jesus Christ can. It's what happens when, when, when people grab a hold of Jesus and they shape him into a cultural meme that suits their agenda. And they do so apart from seeing what Jesus actually said about their agenda in the Gospels. Don't buy into the lesser Jesus of modern culture. You don't get to create your own Jesus to suit your agenda. 1,700 years ago, there was a North African bishop who knew this was already a problem. He said, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. In 1 John 5, verse uh, 20, it says, Jesus is the true God and eternal life. Hang on to that. Any confidence we have in life should be cemented into the foundation of the confidence we have about who Jesus really is. And once we establish that confidence, then confidence in our prayers, confidence in our protection, confidence in our belonging will not be far behind. So don't settle for the shaky foundation of a Jesus of your own invention. Contend to build upon a foundation of your life that is, is based upon, cemented into the real Jesus of the scriptures. Confidence in Jesus. Second, I want want you to hear this. Confidence in Jesus will lead to confidence in your prayers. 
1 John 5 verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Now, this is not some kind of genie in a bottle prayer that some people would make it out to be. The confidence here is not that I can ask for a new portion it's going to materialize outside of my house. That's not what this is saying. The confidence is that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. John Stott said, prayer is not a convenient device for imposing our will upon God or for bending his will to ours, but the prescribed way of subordinating our will to his. It is by prayer that we seek God's will, embrace it, and align ourselves with it. Every true prayer is a variation on the theme, your will be done. So the big idea of the text is the confidence that we know he hears us. Now that in and of itself is a mind-bending reality. The cosmic God of all creation, the one who is the origin of all things, the sustainer of all things, the giver of all things, the redeemer of all things. He listens to me. Here's the cry of my heart. And then you say, well, what then should I pray about? Anything you want, according to the will of God. But John the Apostle is aiming at something specific here in the text that I think should be a huge encouragement to us in our prayers. Look at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, Christ City, hang on with me. Hang on with me. I need you to labor in the text with me for just a minute. I promise you, this is still about prayer. This isn't talking about levels of sin. I want to be really clear and really simple with what I think this is saying. John is talking about two kinds of people here more than he's talking about two kinds of sin. Sin that doesn't lead to death is sin that's committed by Christians who then repent of that sin and because they have a means for acquiring forgiveness through the atoning work of Jesus, we can be assured that our prayers are heard and their sins will be forgiven. That, that's what this is talking about. We talked about this previously in First. John. 1 John 1 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Chapter 2, verse 12 I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. That's the sin that does not lead to death. And he's talking about Christians who sin and then repent of their sin and are forgiven because of the finished work of Jesus in their place. But then there is a sin that leads to death. And the sin that leads to death is unrepentant sin. Let me say it again because I know you're going to talk about this in your house churches. What is the sin that leads to death? 
The sin that leads to death is the sin of the person who will not repent of their sin and come to Jesus. And it leads to death. This is the sin of those who are determined to reject Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus and you repent of your sin, you are not committing the sin that leads to death. In your ongoing effort to do battle against your flesh and against whatever it is that comes against you that makes you sin, if you are doing battle and repenting of your sin, that is not sin that leads to death. The sin that leads to death is unrepentant sin of people who reject Jesus. Now remember, I said the purpose of John's gospel was to bring people to faith, and the purpose of John's letter is to give assurance to the faithful. That's what he's doing here. He's writing to Christians about the way they can be praying for one another in their community, the church. How they can have confidence that their prayers are heard. Okay, Track with me on the text. Look back at verses 14, 15, and then into 16. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. And then it's almost like he says, let me give you an example. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask. That is prayer language. He shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Now, Christ City, I'm, I, I have been praying and I know God hears me. I have great confidence in Jesus, which gives me confidence that he hears my prayers. And I have been praying this week that we would catch this. I pray that we would see it as a privilege to pray for one another. This is talking about what we would call intercessory prayer. He's he's telling these folks that when they see someone wandering from faithfulness to Jesus, he's saying it's their responsibility to pray for them. When you see somebody veering off the path into sin, your responsibility first is to be in prayer for them. Your responsibility is not to be in slander for them or in gossip for them, but to be in prayer for them. It says, if anyone sees his brother or his sister committing a sin, you shall ask and God will give them life. It says, if anyone sees, that means it's not just my job, it's our job as a church. That means your prayer life is about us, not just you. I want us to catch this, that our prayer life is communal, not individualistic. It means people in our church suffer for the lack of your prayers. Our communal task of pursuing holiness and faithfulness includes our prayer life as we pray for people who have swerved into sin and we're asking God that they might come back, that they might repent of their sin and return to faithfulness in Jesus. Your prayer life does not belong only to you. It's not just you and Jesus. Your prayer life matters to the whole of Christ City. And we have confidence in Jesus which leads to confidence that he hears our prayers. Third, I want us to see that confidence in Jesus will lead to confidence in our protection. Verse 18, 
We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, the New Testament was written in ancient Greek. It's called Koine Greek. And for what it's worth, let me say this is a very tough verse to translate, which means it sounds a little clunky here. So, so while I have great confidence in the wonderful translations that we have, I just want to make a small adjustment in the translation to bring out what I think this text is really saying in verse 18, okay? See if you can even notice what I've changed. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God, God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. I believe the emphasis here is on God protecting us, that the evil one does not touch us. See, confidence in Jesus will lead to confidence in our protection. But the protection God offers, it's not like some kind of force field that, you know, stops us from ever suffering a challenging circumstance. Like we've sort of existing in some sort of invisible bubble of God's protection where nothing bad is ever going to happen to us. That's not what this is talking about. It's not the kind of protection that we have confidence in. It's it's the kind of protection that Jesus taught in John's gospel. He taught his disciples in John's gospel. John chapter 10, verse 28, he says, I give them eternal life. This is Jesus. He says, I give them eternal life that they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Confidence in Jesus will lead to confidence in our protection. Again, not a force field bubble against some sort of suffering and bad circumstances, but a bigger, greater confidence than that. And in 1 John, we have seen over these past weeks the foundation of our confidence and how it is in what Jesus has done on our behalf. He brought eternal life. He cleanses us from sin. He intercedes with the Father. He atones for sin. He destroys the work of the devil. He demonstrates God's love. I could keep going. All of that is summarized here in verse 18 where it says God protects us. All of this is given to us when we become children of the Father through the work of Jesus. So I want us to see that we ground our confidence in life in the real Jesus. I want us to see that confidence in Jesus leads us to confidence in our prayers, to confidence in our protection. But fourth, I want us to see that confidence in Jesus will lead to confidence in our belonging, in our belonging. Verse 19 says, we know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Okay, this is simply an extension of the protection that I just talked about, but from the sense that we really truly belong to God as children of the Father. We really truly belong as his children. Again, John is contrasting two kinds of people, those in the kingdom of God, in the family of God, and those who are in what John calls the world. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies the power of the evil one. We know that we are of God. We're of God through the work of Jesus. He has drawn us into relationship with the triune God. He says we are from God. We belong to him. We are children of the Father. We are members of the household of faith. We are citizens of the kingdom of Jesus. See, confidence in our belonging really matters. It really matters because 
you will be tempted at some point or another to believe that you are just an imposter. You will be tempted at some point or another to believe that you are an illegitimate child of the Father. Confidence in our belonging really matters because you will be tempted at some point or another to question whether or not God is really for you. Do you really belong? But hear me. You need to know how you belong and on what grounds you belong if you're ever going to have confidence that you belong. See, on one hand, you might be the kind of person who says, look, I'm good. I'm not a religious person. I'm not a bad person. I'm I'm surely better than others, and God should just accept me as I am. But my question is, does that mean then that you belong to God? See, that's based on your own estimation of your own goodness, based all on your own standards. It's based on your perfect achievement of the standards that you have set. And it might not be today, and it might not be tomorrow, but at some point you're going to realize that this is a shaky foundation that does not offer you a lot of confidence in life. You're going to wonder who you really are. On the other hand, you might be the kind of person who says, I know what God demands for the world. I am a fairly religious person, and I have worked hard to achieve a right standing with God. I'm good not based on my own standards, but based on my performance as it relates to the commands of God as revealed in Scripture. I'm not like those sinners out there in the world. I know my religious performance is good. My question is, does that mean that you belong to God? See, that's based on your own estimation of your own goodness on how well you behave and how well you're obeying. And that gets very tiring very quickly. And it might not be today and it might not be tomorrow, but at some point you're going to realize that this is a shaky foundation that does not offer you a lot of confidence because it is based upon your own record of achievement. But what if I told you that the confidence in your belonging to God is not based on your perfect achievement or your religious performance whatsoever? What if? C.S. Lewis once wrote a letter to someone and it's always stuck with me. He said, think of me as a fellow patient in the same hospital who, having been admitted a little earlier, could give some advice. I've been both of those people. Let me give you some advice. You're not accepted by God because you're a better citizen of Vancouver than the next person. And you're not accepted by God because of your religious performance. Your belonging is not based upon either of those things. The message of the gospel is that you are accepted because of the work of Jesus in your place. When you understand that your confidence of belonging to God is based not on your inconsistent and flawed works, but on Jesus' eternally consistent and perfect work in your place, then you are free to receive your belonging instead of trying to earn it. That's what confidence in Jesus does. Confidence in Jesus will lead to confidence in your prayers. Confidence in Jesus will lead to confidence in your protection. Confidence in Jesus will lead to confidence in your belonging. Your prayers matter. God is for you. And you belong because you've been welcomed in and through Jesus. 
If you're with your house church, I know you're going to get ready right now to celebrate communion. It's a joyous celebration. We like to do it in community. We think that's the right way to do it. So whether you're celebrating it right now as you finish watching this, or you're going to do it later in the week with your house church, I just want you to do it together. Celebrate communion together as a community. If you're not a follower of Jesus, communion's not for you because communion points us to what we have received and it is the foundation of our confidence. Christ died in our place. His body was broken, his blood was shed. So we take the bread and the wine and we celebrate his finished work. So pray through the liturgy that we've provided. Warm your hearts in the truth of your acceptance because of the perfect one who died in your place. Celebrate communion together as a community now. Let me pray. Father, I I know the struggle of trying to be good enough to earn a right standing before you. I know the struggle of thinking that though you may have brought me in by grace, I need to hold on to my place through all of my perfect religious performance and all of this, God, I know is very difficult and it caused me to be a very shaky Christian. (laughs) Oh God, I pray that you'd blow our minds today with the reality of what you've done in Christ. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill us with power and conviction and a deep, deep abiding confidence that we are children of the Father and that as his children, we are heard and we are protected and we are welcomed and we belong in his family. I pray all of this In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.